0: Washington goes to DEFCON 1. That may be the only way to describe the impact of the decision this week by Justice Anthony Kennedy to resign from the Supreme Court. Given that Kennedy was often the critical swing vote on a deeply divided court, the confirmation battle over his successor is certain to be a battle royale unlike anything Washington has seen in decades. There is much at stake, the future of abortion rights, gun rights, gay rights. The list is endless. But on that list is much that could well determine the future of the Trump presidency. Can a president be indicted or subpoenaed? Can this president be forced to testify in the Russia investigation? Can he pardon himself? All questions that the next Supreme Court justice may have to resolve. And as the Trump White House culls its list of possible nominees, what, if anything, can Democrats do to slow the process down or even block Trump's ultimate choice? We'll discuss that with a senior Democratic strategist who has been through multiple Supreme Court battles. And we'll also talk about the stunning news about the upcoming summit between President Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin on today's episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook.
1: I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium
0: from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia you know is one? a ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydeman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News well Dan this was truly a uh, apocalyptic moment uh, in uh, Washington with the uh, with the news of Kennedy's retirement um, already the battle lines are drawn uh, we are expecting to this to be uh, quite the confirmation fight um, probably reminiscent of uh, of ones from uh, you and I uh, well remember from the past Robert Bork Clarence Thomas but there is just so much at stake on this one.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, I think this is the most consequential um, Supreme Court uh, nomination in in a generation, at least, and mostly because, or entirely because, uh, it uh, will likely uh, change um, the ideological um, balance of the court, and we um, are living in a time uh, when the court is. Uh, really polarized. Um, and so uh, the likelihood of a, um, uh, of a, of a, of a justice um, who is kind of the swing vote on the court and can kind of go either way, be ideologically flexible, um, is just less and less likely. Um, these nominees are so carefully vetted um, by administrations um, that the chances of a Kennedy or a, or a Justice Souter um, or someone along those lines just seems uh, uh, very slim.
0: Right. And, you know, when you think about it, look, Kennedy was a Reagan appointee. He was a conservative, but he was sort of the one guy on a divided court that – that liberals or progressives would have a chance at getting uh, uh, getting his vote, um, uh, you know, going into every big Supreme Court issue uh, argument, um, you pretty much know that when it's ideological, when it's political, uh, you've got four liberals uh, on there that are reliable votes, and you've got four conservatives that are going to vote. Um, uh, uh, against you if you're a progressive or a liberal uh, Kennedy was the one guy who um, you you would craft your arguments uh, to get um, actually on either side. He was the one who could be the flipper as he was sometimes uh, uh, uh you know, derided or uh, mocked for being because he could he would change his position or he'd be open to an argument. So, if we have a uh, uh, an ideological conservative who comes in who's not viewed as open to persuasion in the way that Kennedy is, that really does change the dynamic of the court.
2: Absolutely, and you know, Mike, the the best evidence that that everybody thought that um, uh, Justice Kennedy's vote was pretty much always in play. Um is not uh, just how the 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 litigants um, would uh, would try to win him over, but the the other justices themselves. I mean, I've sat in um, Supreme Court oral arguments when uh, a justice from one side or or the other side of the political divide. Um, would would say things like, well, as, as, uh, as Justice Kennedy has said, and they, they would quote him, trying to play to his vanity, I guess, so they could, so they could win him over. Um, and you just don't see much of that anymore. I, I have to say I'm very excited about the conversation we're about to have with uh, Ron Klain, who you and I have known for a very long time. I think I start, started covering him when he was uh, the chief counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee under Joe Biden uh, when he was 27 years old. And then went on to become uh, Bill Clinton's judge picker um, and has been a, a strategist um, in Supreme Court nominations, um, you know, ever since then, you know, for, you know, close to 30, you know, probably 30 years or so. Um, and so it'll be very interesting to see um, how how Klain um, uh, talks about what is clearly going to be a, a real uphill battle for the Democrats to try to block, um, you know, uh, Donald Trump's nominations Um uh, if anybody, if anybody can make, um, uh, you know, can figure out a strategy, and I'm sure he's doing this with uh, with Senate Democrats, it's Ron Klain, um, but it's it's not going to be easy.
0: Right. And after, Ron, we've got uh, David Sanger of The New York Times, who's got a new book uh, uh, out, The Perfect Weapon, about uh, uh, cyber attacks and uh, what the U.S. government has done or hasn't done to try to prevent them uh, and respond to them. A fascinating uh, uh, book in light of uh, the ongoing uh, questions about Russia and Russians' attack in the elec- in. in Uh, 2016. And this comes as uh, we've just learned uh, that there's an upcoming summit uh, between uh, President Trump and uh, and and Vladimir Putin uh, in Helsinki. That's going to be quite fascinating, especially because uh, we learned once again from the president's tweets that he still doesn't accept what everybody in the U.S. government and the intelligence community has told him that Russia attacked and influenced our election in 2016. He still seems to be resisting that um, uh, unanimous conclusion from the uh, U.S. intelligence community.
2: Well, we'll see if the uh, if the the Putin Trump bromance uh, lives on in Helsinki. Not the most romantic city in the world, but you know, we'll see.
0: <laughs> Let's get to our uh, first guest.
2: We are now joined by Ron Klain, uh, a Washington lawyer and um, uh, veteran of Democratic administrations in Congress, who I, I guess has been involved in just about every uh, Supreme Court nomination uh, for at least the last generation, um, uh, and uh, surely uh, will be involved in Uh, This one, the resignation of Anthony Kennedy, which uh, was a real earthquake um, in Washington. So welcome, Ron, um, to Skullduggery. Uh, We're really happy to have you.
1: I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Let me just start by just to put this in a little bit of of uh, historical perspective. Um, Would you say, uh, given the ideological makeup of the court and frankly how polarized it is, Uh, that this is the most consequential resignation, Supreme Court resignation, in your lifetime?
1: No, I would say it's on a par, though, with the resignation of Justice Powell uh, 31 years ago, which is how we got Justice Kennedy in the first place. Uh, Lewis Powell, like Kennedy, was kind of the middle balancing vote on the court with a little tilt to the right um, uh, in the Berger and Rehnquist courts. And, uh, And he stepped down in the summer of 1987, uh, Ronald Reagan, very popular Republican president, nominated a supremely credentialed federal judge, Robert Bork, and the Senate voted him down. Uh, I think kind of beat the odds to vote him down. Uh, you know, people thought that the Democrats couldn't stick together, couldn't take him down. They did. They stuck together. They got six Republicans to defect. Uh, judge Bork was defeated, and uh, as a result, President Reagan was forced to go to a compromise candidate, Just- Judge Kennedy, Justice Kennedy, ultimately. And I think that's the situation, the same situation we're in now. Kennedy then has filled the seat for the next 31 years, and now, once again, the pivotal seat on the Supreme Court is up to be filled.
0: And the big difference, of course, is the Democrats don't control the Senate right now. So that leaves open the question of what the Democrats can do to stop a Trump nominee. How much leverage do they have?
1: What should be their strategy going forward? Obviously, it is better to have more votes than fewer, and it's better to be the people who set the hearings and drive the process. No question about it. And That's the advantage the Democrats had in 87. But keep in mind, in the end, they beat Judge Bork by, I think, a 57 to 42 margin with some uh, so room to spare. And it really came down to the same thing this will come down to now, just making a case to the country, a case powerful enough that it dislodged Republican votes. Six Republicans defected from Ronald Reagan in 1987 and voted against Bork. They're going to have to make the same kind of case now about the person that Donald Trump nominates. Uh, if they're going to have a, the same kind of success in 2018 that they had in 1987.
2: So so Ron it doesn't sound like like you uh you think that there are uh any significant kind of parliamentary uh, uh maneuvers that could block a nomination. I mean the, the Democrats don't have uh, uh the filibuster anymore since the Republicans changed the rule. Um I've read some stories that suggest that the that there's at least uh a very long shot possibility that the Democrats could uh, essentially shut down the Senate by refusing to vote, denying the Republicans a quorum. Although there is debate about that, but does not seem likely either. You think it it really is about persuasion, and and and, and not more than that?
1: I, I do. I mean, after all, I I think the Democrats can and should try any parliamentary trick they can. I think if they can try to deny a quorum, if they can try to shut down Senate business, but I think it's a mistake to believe that that's going to stop Mitch McConnell. If the Democrats deny a quorum, the Senate will just change the quorum rules and say you don't need any Democrats to make a quorum. If the Democrats shut down Senate business, Mitch McConnell will say, fine, I don't really care about any of this business. We're not going to pass some post post office naming bills? Fine, I don't care. We're not going to pass appropriations bills? Fine, I don't care. The only thing Mitch McConnell wants to do is confirm a Supreme Court justice. That's what keeps Mitch McConnell as Republican leader in the face of conservative insurgent republican opposition to his leadership this is his ticket and i think i think the democrats should try everything should throw everything against the wall but i do think in the end uh, the way they're going to stop him is by getting 50 votes against him I mean I just think that's the 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 power of politics but here. making
0: making a case to the country but the power of persuasion um you know you gotta wonder given how polarized the country is now far more so than it was during the uh, uh, Reagan administration in the Bork days um, whether that's even possible um, you have you know alternative media that uh, you know presents completely different versions of reality to the country um, chipping away at the support uh, at at, at Republican support for the president seems to have been futile so far. Um, well, what gives you any optimism that you can uh, make a case to the country and
1: persuade? Well, first of all, I never thought I'd hear Mike Isakoff referring to the Reagan administration as the good old days. That's, a, <laughs> that's certainly a kind of a surprising moment here in my time in Washington. Well, there are many surprising moments these yeah. days. Right. But look, uh Uh, I agree. It is an uphill fight. I've been on the Senate when we were in the majority. I've been there when we were in the minority. It's always better to have more votes, no question about it. But here's what I'd say about this situation. Uh, Number one, there is a, um, a pathway of how this has been done, which was on beating President Trump and the Republicans on the Affordable Care Act repeal. They did, in the end, line up the Republican votes they needed to beat uh, Donald Trump in his effort in 2017 to repeal the Affordable Care Act, uh, and I think this will look very similar to that in terms of who the targets are. Once again, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski. So uh, I, I think there is a there is a playbook here that has worked. That's the first thing I'd say. Second thing is I think the Democrats have to do something they don't do very well, which is be strategic and pick a simple message. And to me, the simple message is Roe versus Wade is on the line. I think if you really uh, galvanize this around Roe and the continued existence of Roe and and put it right to the two Republicans who are ostensibly pro-choice, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins— and make it clear that a vote for this nominee will overturn Roe versus Wade. I uh, think you can build some pressure on them that hopefully snaps one of them over. That's probably all you're going to need if you can hold the Democrats. Um, but, uh, you know, I think two is better than one. Uh, it's a hard fight. I mean, it is definitely a hard fight. And the place where uh, this battle, if it's if it winds up being lost, will have been lost, obviously, is in 2016. When the Democrats, uh, you know, didn't win the White House and didn't win the Senate when they had a chance to do both, uh, but I think uh, I think they should try everything they can to delay it. They should try everything they can to use all the parliamentary tricks. Uh, but ultimately they, they also are gonna have to go get the votes.
0: So this really has very little to do with the character or background of the nominee. Here we're talking uh, uh, under the assumption that the Democrats are gonna vigorously fight anybody Trump picks, but let's say he picks somebody uh, whose name has been out there, who uh, Dan and I, and I, uh, I'm sure you know well, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, a uh, conservative uh, uh, judge on the US Court of Appeals, but Somebody who is a fairly establishment guy, known to many in Washington, is not a uh, not a fire breathing uh, reactionary uh, or Trumpite. Um, do you fight and go all out against a Brett Kavanaugh nominee, um, or do you uh, let him? or her, whoever it might be, have their say, listen to what they uh, testify to during their confirmation hearings, and then uh, defer how you're going to vote?
1: Well, look, um, President Trump in the third presidential debate in front of 100 million people who all watched him do this, Said that he would appoint a judge who would overturn Roe v.ersus Wade. He said that's what he would do. He said, uh, "I want to overturn Roe v.ersus Wade. If I get two appointments, we will overturn Roe v.ersus Wade." And so I take him at his word. That's what he said he was going to do. I presume that's what he's doing. And uh, obviously, you know, the facts show otherwise. Uh, if there's some evidence that the nominee uh, isn't consistent with that promise by the president, well, then you know we'll just see what happens. But I think that. Um, uh, I expect uh, this has been a very concerted effort by the president. Uh, he uh, declared it in the campaign. This is what he was going to do. I expect that's what he's going to do. And so, uh, you know, I mean, I'm happy to learn otherwise, but I, I just, I expect that's what'll happen.
2: Well, well, I think what we know though, Ron, is that uh, whoever is uh, uh, President Trump's nominee is going to do that dance um, that uh, you know. All Supreme Court nominees have done in the past uh, few, you know, years, uh, which is to say that they uh, 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 respect settled law. They're not going to overturn uh, uh, precedents. Um, and um, and how, if you're if you're a if you're the Democrats, how do you um, fight back against that? What's the argument? Uh, because that's the kind of thing that Susan Collins um, can um, you know can say. Okay, well. Um, the issue for me is is that uh, uh, Roe versus Wade is a settled law, and the nominee says that uh, he's going to respect that or she's going to sh- respect that.
1: Yeah, so I don't think that's good enough. Um, and it's interesting because for the Republicans on Democratic nominees, that has not been good enough. Most Republicans, the overwhelming majority of them, voted against uh, Justice Kagan, voted against Justice Sotomayor because they refused to make the affirmative statement that they believe that the Second Amendment – was applied against the states via the 14th Amendment. And they both said, I have an open mind on this. They both said, I'll consider it when it was presented. Uh, but they wouldn't say, I am deciding right now that this issue not decided by the court uh, should be decided this way. The Second Amendment should be applied against the states. And uh, and, I, and I have to tell you, the Republicans held the line on that. And most of the Republicans voted against both those nominees. So I don't think it's unprecedented for uh, a senator to say uh, it's not just good enough to tell me that you have an open mind or you respect precedent. I'm looking for um, to know, uh, particularly in the face of a presidential commitment, that he's promised to pick someone who would overturn this decision, that unless you have some reason to believe that the president is lying or some reason to believe that the president isn't following through on that commitment, you have to kind of take that for what it is. Now, last thing I want to say on this is um, – well, I've been obviously focused, as I said, I think the Democrats should on choice and, and Roe. Uh, as you guys both know, as veterans of this process, a lot of other issues do come up. And the, the quality and the character of the nominee and his or her answers do play a big part in this. And so um, there are always some wild cards in this process. There's always something. And that also uh, remains to play out.
0: Um, there are a lot of uh, uh, a lot of huge events out there that um, uh, could impact this process. And one of them is uh, Robert Mueller's investigation into the um, uh, into Russia and ties to the Trump campaign with a lot of expectation that uh, Mueller's going to do something this summer. The. I mean, general consensus is he can't wait till after Labor Day. So if he's got to uh, make a move, provide a report on obstruction uh, or subpoena the president, um, uh, he's got to do it fairly soon. Um, And, um, A lot of reason to think that's going to be, you know, that could end up as a Supreme Court issue. Can the president be subpoenaed? Can he be indicted? Can he uh, pardon himself? Um, uh, How do you see the Mueller investigation playing into the upcoming battle over
1: the Supreme Court? Well, I do think that the very first question this nominee should be asked before their rear end really hits the chair uh, by the first Democrat who gets to ask questions, uh, will be Senator Feinstein, should be uh, did anyone in the administration, did the president, did anyone in the administration? Ask you your views on these questions, ask you your views on Mueller's jurisdiction or uh, the exemption of the president from potentially being indicted while sitting or the definition of obstruction of justice or anything or a, related. Or a,
2: or a president's pardon power. Can he pardon or a president's himself? Part, his
1: power, part, 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 this whole list of things. The first question the nominee should be asked is whether or not he or she were asked these questions by the administration. And that's not a question the nominee should be able to dodge. There are these, as you guys mentioned, these uh, kind of accepted historical dodges about not giving away their judicial philosophy or how they'd rule on cases. But a fact question, were you asked about this in the vetting process? Did you offer a view on this in the vetting process? Is not a question that a nominee has a right to resist. And that's to be question number one here. We know that President Trump asked for a personal loyalty oath from the FBI director, Jim Comey. We'll see what President Trump or his people ask out of this nominee on these questions. That's the place where I would start in terms of bringing these issues into the confirmation process. Um, I think the second thing, they will be trying to probe the nominee on their substantive views on these questions. And some of these nominees have written about this topic before. Judge Kavanaugh, for example, has has written about some of these, uh, some of these issues before. What's he said? Well, you know, he's basically um, – Uh, Talked a little bit about whether the president can or can't be uh, 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 indicted and subject to judicial process. Uh, He was also, as uh, most of your listeners know, uh, was a member of Ken Starr's. Right. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say he was
0: a deputy to Ken Starr, who took the position that the president can be indicted.
1: Yeah. So, so I think. I think, uh, I, think it's, I think it's incumbent on, uh, I would hope, both sides in the Senate, but more realistically the Democrats, to, to uh, push the nominee uh, first on what they said or didn't say to the administration about this and second on, on their views. Now, look, I think this is also a wild card in this process. There were reports after the Gorsuch nomination, that when Judge Gorsuch just lightly rebuked President Trump in his confirmation hearing and said he didn't like the way Donald Trump had criticized sitting judges, that Trump said to some of his aides that they should withdraw the Gorsuch nomination in the middle of his confirmation process. And uh, we know that Donald Trump is even more erratic than he was back in early 2017. And <laughs> How fast, do you judge that? Yeah, just well, I to, judge uh, it by the Twitter feed, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And it's wilder than ever, and not in a good way. And so... I think it'll be interesting to see how this issue plays out over the confirmation process. What the nominee does or doesn't say, what they were asked or not asked, and then what uh, Trump's reaction to all that is when it spills out in the Senate Judiciary Committee.
0: Yeah, you know, I I, I just got to say uh, the, the the Kavanaugh point is so fascinating because if he were to dodge the question about uh, uh, whether the president can be indicted, um, I guess the follow-up would be: Do you believe um, your former boss Ken Starr was wrong when he came to the conclusion that the president could? Be be charged
1: with criminal conduct. Exactly. Exactly. So, look, I think this. Each one of these people is idiosyncratic, I mean, we've been talking about them as a as a as a group. Obviously, we don't have a, a specific nominee yet, and and uh, you know, the, the President Trump ran on a list of people. It's a long list, and and so uh, you know, but I think any one of them will have also specific issues and specific questions they have to answer.
2: Ron, I want to get back to tactics for a second because I think it was a you know about thirty seconds after Justice Kennedy. Um, announced his resignation, that you um, uh, tweeted out uh, the strategy to target uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. Um, but the Republicans, of course, will be targeting uh, some key Democratic senators, uh, particularly from red states that, that, uh, that went for uh, Donald Trump. And there are three in particular that uh, people are talking about, Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota. Uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and uh, and Joe Donnelly of Indiana, your home state. Yes. Uh, what um, so to assess uh, uh, that? Uh, do you think that that uh, that they uh, you know aren't they going to face tremendous pressure? Uh, and and it all would take one one or two of them um, to to yeah. side with the Republicans and 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 the Democrats have lost. So uh, wh- how do you assess that?
1: Well, look, obviously, I think, Dan, you're on to a key issue here, but let's let's look at the facts. I mean, number one, President Trump was in North Dakota last, not last night uh, blasting Heidi Heitkamp. So what I would say to Senator Heitkamp and Senator Donnelly and Senator Manchin is that the president has made it very clear he is going to campaign against you no matter what you do. All three of these people voted for Neil Gorsuch, and all three of them are in the president's crosshairs. He has been in to campaign against all three of them. So – my first question would be, well, why would you vote with Donald Trump when he's made it clear he's trying to run you out of office no matter what you do? The
0: answer is because Trump carried their states overwhelmingly.
1: Right. But, but, but you're going to have to find a formula to rally voters to keep you in office. And I'm not sure that lining up with President Trump is the formula when President Trump is still kicking you in the face every day. Secondly, I will say that all three of those senators, all three of them voted against repealing Obamacare. And they stood up to Trump on that. They stood up to Trump pressure. They stood up to Trump campaigning on that. So I think that's uh, an important thing. Um, I think all three of them, look, they will wait. They will see. They are, they are uh, uh, serious people. They're going to make a, a judgment based on the facts and the testimony and everything, and I respect that, and they should do that. But I'd also say this. I think the politics on this has shifted. I think the Republicans may well have miscalculated here. It is a fact That in 2016, and really in the decades before that, judicial nominations was more of a political issue for Republican voters. Of the voters in 2016 who said that judicial nominations were the deciding factor in their vote, three of them were for Trump for every two that were for Clinton, he won the election because of this issue, no question. But I think a lot of that's driven by the fact that until quite recently, the headline issues at the court were issues that really, even as the court got more conservative, were issues that liberals had won on. Abortion, marriage equality, uh, upholding the Affordable Care Act. And so I think Democrat voters didn't really feel a lot of risk or threat from the court. Republican voters felt a lot of a grievance. Uh, aggrieved voters vote more intensively. Well, I think all that's changed in the past two years, I think particularly with some of the decisions out of the court this year, and now with the vacancy of Justice Kennedy's seat. So I think, if anything, I think there's going to be more intensity and more focus uh, among the Democrats, Democratic voters on this issue than even among Republican voters. I think the politics on this are flipping over. And I think that's going to create a very different dynamic than people expect. Again, I don't want to keep going back to history. but This is kind of how the Bork thing played out. When Reagan nominated Bork, the betting was that the Southern Democrats would not hold, that they couldn't stand up to Ronald Reagan, that they couldn't vote against a law and order judge in their home states. And in the end, by the time we got to the vote, It was the Southern Democrats who largely held, and it was uh, some more moderate Republicans who flipped and voted against Ronald Reagan.
0: Let me ask you about another uh, election wildcard out there. Um, uh, We had a lot of excitement this week uh, in Democratic Party circles uh, about uh, the triumph of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in in New York, defeating uh, uh, Joe Crowley, veteran uh, House uh, Democrat, Um, uh, firing up the progressive base of the um, of the Democratic Party now she has said right from the outset that she will support the impeachment of Donald Trump, something that uh, um, uh, Democratic Party leaders, Nancy Pelosi, don't want being talked about in this election because they fear that that will fire up the Republican base and could backfire. You're uh, a, uh, a veteran mainstream establishment Democrat. Um, are you at all worried that um, uh, Ocasio-Cortez's uh, victory and the comments that she's making about impeachment um, could make your job more difficult?
1: Well, uh, look, uh, Joe Ca- Crowley was a friend and I, uh, I supported him in that primary, but I have to say that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, won because she ran a great campaign and it was a great candidate. And I think she's a great asset to our party. And I think that uh, her victory is gonna be a real breath of fresh air for us. And, she, and you know, if you look at her campaign, you look at her video, you look at what she uh, pressed with the voters, it was not impeaching Donald Trump. She won because she pressed hard on healthcare for all, jobs for all, college for all. And I think that's an agenda that Democrats across the country can run on. I think that's an agenda that Democrats across the country are running on. And I think that... Um, but she was ex-
0: asked the question yeah, I understand. and she I think, answered, and, yes, it's, and I, it's there. It's it out there. there.
1: I agree it's there, and I think probably, uh, you know, there are a lot of other Democrats who feel that way. There are other Democrats who want to see what Mueller does first. But uh, I don't think she's suggesting in any way, shape, or form that the 2018 campaign should be a referendum on impeachment. Uh, I think what she's suggesting is it should be a referendum on health care, jobs, and college. And I think that's a good way to run the 2018 campaign. And I think she... I think her victory... Uh, it in, in, you know, uh, brings a big breath of fresh air into our party. And look, I think in the long run, the biggest threat to the Democratic Party um, is the possibility that younger voters, and particularly Sanders voters – and I was on the other side of them. I was a Clinton supporter. But uh, younger voters and Sanders voters are a critical part of our coalition. And the biggest threat to our party was that they would either defect from the party and do something else or just sit at home. And I think the fact that some Sanders people won primaries this week, not just uh, Ocasio-Cortez in New York, but also uh, Ben Jealous in Maryland, uh, I think shows them that the process is fair, that they can win, that they're welcome in the party. And I do think – look, I think they will stir our party up. They will provoke change, but they're going to do it from inside the party as elected officials and party leaders inside our party. I think that just makes us stronger.
0: How do you think – How do you think things look right now uh, for the Democrats in the um,
1: November election? I feel cautiously optimistic about it. Look, it's a crazy political season, and we've seen a lot of things can happen. But I think that uh, you look at the quality of the candidates that have come through the primaries for us uh, so far. You look at where we are uh, in a national, general, uh, generic uh, tally. uh, You look at – uh, kind of where we are in terms of levels of voter enthusiasm and energy, uh, how people are turning out in these primaries. I think all the signs are very, very good. It is going to be close. The country is bitterly divided, and I don't think any side is going to win some gigantic win one way or the other. I think it's our politics now are really a game of inches. And um, but I do think at the end of the day, Democrats will take back the House. And I think we have a decent shot of taking back the Senate. It's obviously much harder on the numbers in the Senate. But I think um, you know, we're running ahead of what people expected in Tennessee, doing very well in Arizona, doing very well uh, in Nevada, uh, three, uh, three potential pickups. And all of our incumbents right now are, are, are winning. So, you know, we have to hang on to all that. It's a hard fight, but I think it's possible in the Senate and I think it's certainly likely in the House. And,
2: Ron, how helpful uh, do you think a, a big – confirmation, Supreme Court confirmation battle would be? Because uh, I think you were alluding to this before. There is this perception out there that the Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court nominations really motivate the Republican base, but uh, but have not motivated the Democratic base in the same way.
1: Yeah, I, I, I absolutely concede that has been true in the past. As I said before, though, I think it's different now. I think Democrats are the aggrieved party now. Uh, the court has swung very far to the right Um, And uh, it's very clear what's at stake with the replacement of Justice Kennedy. And um, I think when you see, you know, uh, Dan, both you and Mike have kind of covered this issue for a long time. And uh, the telling thing to me was not so much that Mitch McConnell came out a few hours after Justice Kennedy's retirement and said, I'm going to try to get this through the Senate as quickly as possible. The telling thing to me was yesterday, day one, you had several Democrats out there already, including the Senate Democratic leader, saying, hey, not so fast, uh, saying, hey, we we have all these concerns about the so-called McConnell rule, no confirmations in an election year. Uh, You had a bunch of uh, rally on the steps of the Supreme Court today. So you're seeing uh, kind of an energy and an activism on the Democratic side you haven't seen in prior confirmation fights, and uh, at least uh, not since Bork. And I think that's uh I think that's telling of what's going on. And I, I just think you look out there uh, in these primaries, in the level of activism in the Democratic Party and I think uh, you got a lot of very stirred-up people that are going to uh, fight very hard on this one. Hey, um, uh,
0: before we let uh, Ron go, uh, Dan, I, I believe you had some anecdote from the distant past you wanted to uh, ask Ron about. Uh, I think this might be a good time to do so. <laughs> uh,
2: you know, this could really uh, blow up in my face because uh, Ron—excellent—why uh, do you think got, I'm, a, I'm think urging you to do it? Story. Uh, about about this uh, anecdote that I'm about to tell. Uh, basically, I, I um, um, I'm the uh, kind of official biographer of Ron Klain, hmm. um, having <laughs> ha-
0: having written. There's a big market for that, <laughs> right?
2: <laughs> having written like a five thousand word piece. On a typewriter, it was so long ago. I literally <laughs> oh, wow. wrote this on You're a typewriter. You're dating yourself, man. Uh, uh, back in, like, 1993. I think Ron was a kind of a freshly minted uh, uh, counsel in, in Bill Clinton's White uh, White House. Um, and I think you were the uh, judicial selection guy, right? You were the judge picker yes, it for was. Bill Clinton. Yes, it was. And yes. the story is um, that um, I think it was March uh, of 93 um, that um, – uh, uh Wizard White, uh, Justice uh, Byron White, um, uh, was about to resign, and you had been a white clerk, um, and he reached out to you. Um, you went and picked up his resignation letter. You brought it to the Oval Office uh, to discuss and, and discuss with President Clinton uh, strategy going forward to replace uh, – uh, Justice White. And then, you know, minutes later or hours later, you were on the phone with your another one of your old bosses, Joe Biden, who was the uh, uh, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So um, it was a kind of a trifecta um, at the kind of tender age of, I think you were 31 years old at the time. Um, and that was the lead of my story back in uh, 1993 in legal times.
1: Yeah. You know, and the amazing thing about that uh, story uh Uh, other than it being uh, written on a typewriter and many decades ago, (laughs) was that actually it's in the middle of another great Washington scandal, a long-forgotten Washington scandal. It was parts of Dan's story that Ruth Shalit plagiarized for a piece she wrote in The New Republic that ultimately exposed uh, her uh, plagiarism scandal to The New Republic and ultimately uh, led to a big uh, turnover there as she was... Uh, sacked for plagiarizing. So, Dan, that that story that story was so good that someone stole <laughs> paragraphs from it and tried to put it in another magazine.
0: Well, I'm just sort of uh, blown away by the historical sweep uh, of this. Uh, Whizzer White, who was a Kennedy appointee, yeah. if I believe, Ron was helping to select his successor and is now trying to advise the Democrats on how to block Donald Trump's uh, nominee in the, in 2018. Um, and we're talking about a story about him that was written on a typewriter. And
2: by the way, I think Wizard White uh, was considered a, a swing justice. Um, uh, m- uh, maybe not in the same way as Kennedy. A but swing vote. A, a swing. A, that's right. A swing justice. A swing vote. Actually, yeah, Kennedy never yeah. liked to be called uh, the the swing vote. Yeah, he no. Said, no
1: one ever likes that phrase. I mean, Justice White. Um, he. Uh, was appointed in a very earlier time and where there's a lot less ideological scrutiny of the judges. Uh, He uh, was picked. I think his confirmation hearing was two days after he was named. It lasted 20 minutes long. They brought him in. They asked him three questions. They sent him on his way. The Senate confirmed him. So (laughs) it's a very, very different era. He turned out to be, you know, somewhat liberal on some things and extremely conservative on other things. He was one of the two dissenters in Roe versus Wade. Um, and uh, you know, very conservative on a lot of other things too. And who is the justice that replaced them? Uh, so Ruth Bader Ginsburg Ruth Bader replaced Ginsburg, him. Yeah, wow, and still it was, on the court.
2: Uh, who could be? Um, I mean, she's eighty-five years old, so I, she will hang on for dear life. Uh, but uh, there is obviously the chance that uh, that Trump will get um, yet another uh, Supreme Court um, nomination um, in 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 the coming years, uh, which is something that I think um, uh, Democrats uh, can't even bear to think about at this particular at that moment. point they
0: lay across the railroad
1: tracks. Yeah, I don't know what happens then I mean I, I saw on Twitter last night a bunch of people were volunteering various internal organs to keep Bader Ginsburg in good health if that's what it took so I think I think it'll be a big big effort to rally behind well, I'm uh, sure Augustus you'll Ginsburg.
0: donate one of yours uh, anyway uh, Ron Klain, thanks for joining us on skullduggery thanks for having me thanks Ron
2: we'll be back with more skullduggery Duggery.
0: So we are joined now by David Sanger, uh, esteemed reporter for The New York Times and author of the uh, fascinating new book, The Perfect Weapon, uh, War, Sabotage and Fear in the Cyber Age. Uh, David, welcome to Skullduggery. Great to be with you, Michael. Um, Very timely uh, book, uh, especially in light of the news this week about uh, the upcoming Trump-Putin summit. There's a lot to unpack in your book, but I want to start out asking you about a a conversation you had with the president last year after the first Trump-Putin summit in which one of the topics uh, of uh, between them was the Russian attack on the election and Trump. I don't know if the word confronted Putin is right in this context, but asked Putin about it. Tell us about what happened and your conversation with the president uh, after that meeting.
3: Well, um, the president called me from Air Force One. Just as it was leaving Hamburg, I was checking out of my hotel. Uh, it was the end of this uh, summit meeting, and he had just met Putin uh, a few hours before, for the
0: first time, correct? As right, far first as time. we know, despite time, his right. multiple uh, comments during the campaign about the for, close first relationship, time we, they first had.
3: time we know of. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, I assume if you'd found another one, you would have put it in your book. <laughs> you <know? laughs> All right.
0: and we we, we <laughs> you looked, looked, believe you me, looked, I'm sure. Right.
3: So. Um, he uh, he was trying to explain how good a meeting it was, and I raised the election issue. He said, "Yeah, we talked about it," and Putin told me. Uh, and while he when he called up, he said this was off record. He later repeated this the next day on the record. He said he told me that um, he had uh, could not it could not have been the Russians because the Russians were so good at cyber. And he said, surely you know this, David. You know, they're so (laughs) good at cyber that if they had done it, we never would have seen them. And I said, well, you know, Mr. President, that isn't really the way this hack was designed. This was designed to be a hack that was made public. Obviously, all of the DNC documents were, you know, handed over to WikiLeaks and DCLeaks and everybody else's uh, leak websites – and John Podesta's emails were, were outed as well. So I said, there was no effort to sort of hide that this intrusion happened. He didn't really answer that. And then I asked him whether or not he believed the intelligence that had been provided by U.S. intel or whether he believed what Putin had told him. And he said, well, the U.S. intel, and again, he said this in public more than once, was uh, written by Clapper and Brennan, referring to Jim Clapper, the former director of national intelligence. And um, – Mr. Brennan, of course, was uh, the director of the CIA. And he said, those guys are so political. How could I believe that? Now, what he ignores in all of that and in this morning's tweet is that his own secretary of state, when CIA director last year, told Congress he believes the Russians interfered. The, his predecessor, Rex Tillerson, Tillerson told Congress he believes they interfere. All of the intel heads have said that,
0: the current intel heads. So yeah, and and the tweet Thursday morning really uh, drives this home and uh, illuminates the passage in your book because here is Trump uh, nearly a year later. and what does he write? Russia continues to say they had nothing to do with meddling in our election exclamation point, right. as though he still accepts, Putin's version of his events rather than his own intelligence community.
3: Well, you know, one of the things we complain about a lot of politicians is their inconsistency. He has been completely consistent. (laughs) From the campaign forward, he has done nothing but cast doubt to the overwhelming evidence that the Russians and Putin himself were behind the hack. But,
2: David, didn't the Obama administration to some extent play into uh, Trump's hands here uh, uh, when they announced – um the uh, the hack in the in the summer of uh, 2016 um they just flatly asserted that it happened
3: um but they really provided no evidence at all well Dan it's a really good point so um, they didn't do it in the summer by the way we did it in the summer in the new york times by saying that there was overwhelming evidence it was the russians they said nothing until october 7th one of the big arguments of the perfect weapon Dan is that the Obama administration made a huge error long before the Russians even got to the DNC hack that by failing to identify the Russians as the ones behind the hack into the State Department, into the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and into the White House unclassified system, where, as the book relates, there was a two-week-long battle between the NSA and the Russian hackers as the NSA tries to oust them, and the Russian hackers keep coming back. Hand-to-hand combat.
0: Richard Leggett, the former deputy director of the NSA, called it. That's right. That's
3: what he calls it in the Mm -hmm. book and has called Mm -hmm. it publicly. Um, uh, The fact that that was going on And the administration never called out the Russians. So, if you're Vladimir Putin, what are you supposed to think, Dan? That if they're not going to make a big deal out of the fact that his hackers were in the White House, who's going to care about the DNC, which is basically run by or staffed by a bunch of college kids?
2: Yeah. So he was. I mean, so Putin just was felt emboldened. Um, Yeah, but he must feel even more so uh, because. Uh, the administration really didn't do that much. The Obama administration didn't do that much um, after uh, you know they hacked the election and hacked into you know American democracy, um, right? Because uh, what did they do in the end? I mean, they PNG'd a few diplomats. They closed some facilities. Um, not exactly the most muscular. Uh, it, response. it certainly wasn't.
3: In fact, in the book, I quoted an administration official, a very senior uh, official, well known to uh, all of us, but I don't think I name him in the book who after they th- PNG the um, officials says, this was the perfect 19th century solution to a 21st <laughs> century problem. Okay? So that's a, that, that's <laughs> a good line. Right, it's a good that line. Is- but one other thing that, that mm-hmm. I do mention in the book, mm-hmm. it turns out that one of the facilities they closed, they closed in part because the Russians had been digging into the ground underneath the facility and tapping into a giant telephone, old-fashioned cable that was running a huge amount of internet traffic.
0: we are <laughs> seen
2: it, straight out of the Americans, uh, you can
0: imagine. Where, it. where was that facility? Uh, I think it's one in Long Island. Um, let me just ask you about one other line in the president's new tweet, uh, uh, because it, it, it sort of pushes... The an argument that's made by those who simply don't want to accept the Russian role. Where is the DNC ser- server and why didn't shady James Comey and the now disgraced FBI agents take and closely examine it? Um, tell us what he's referring to and what's the answer to that question.
3: Okay, so um, if he wants to know where the server is, we put a picture of it in our the story that uh, we wrote at the end of – 2016, uh, from which this book draws its name, The Perfect Weapon, and uh, the server is at the DNC. It had been downloaded by uh, the cyber people who had come in, CrowdStrike Crowdstrike. and all that. Um, Do I think that the FBI should have taken control of the server itself, just subpoenaed it and grabbed it as they would for any crime scene thing? Absolutely, they should have. Do I think they would have learned anything from it that CrowdStrike didn't?
0: Absolutely not. But it was bad tradecraft not to take it. Um, but th- I think your basic point is that the uh, uh, the evidence goes far beyond what happened to that server uh, that makes it the clear this was the The evidence includes a
3: human source. You know, there was this fascinating moment where John Brennan was, you know— didn't even put information about the source in the presidential daily brief because he was afraid that it was read by too many people and was passing around direct messages to explain that they've attributed this directly to Putin himself.
0: Um, Let's talk about the larger point of your book because it's an important one, which is um, what does the... uh, U.S. government do in this cyber age with so many hostile nation-state actors out there using cyber to hack us, to attack us, to disrupt us? Um, what is the appropriate response? And it's uh, it, it's clear from reading your book that this is something that the U.S. government is still grappling with, and we're not hearing any good answers. You no,
3: know, we certainly are. And in fact, I think we've gone backwards in this debate debate a little bit ever since John Bolton got rid of both people at the senior levels of the NSC who knew the most about the topic and eliminated the position of cyber security cyber coordinator because yeah. clearly we're over-coordinated in the US government. <laughs> I mean, that's got to be a big message of the book. Now, we've developed a huge amount, a huge number of very sophisticated cyber weapons. That's a really good thing. The really bad news about this is we have no strategy about how we want to go employ them. And that is particularly difficult if you are in a situation in which uh, you are trying to figure out a new means of deterrence. People get hung up with the with the deterrence that we had during the Cold War involving nuclear. That is not what's going on here. In that case, the weapons were in the hands of a few states and one in particular you needed to deter. Cyber weapons are useful uh, – by – to a large number of people, states and non-state actors. You can dial them up. You can dial them down. You can target them. It's a much more complicated deterrence problem. And yet, we have not publicly engaged the question of what kind of deterrence do we want to do, explain to the public what kind of cyber capability we have and how we use it because we can't expect to set global rules in which we're the first violators. Why haven't we done this? Because everything around cyber is considered classified. It's the first weapon that was really developed by the intelligence community. You may have noticed over the course of your career, you guys, that they're a little secretive, okay? And (laughs) as as a result, they do not want to have a public debate. So supposing we sat down like, you know— Dan, Mike, and I go out, get a beer, and on the back of the of the napkin, we work out a list of things that we think should be off-limits to cyber attack. Hospitals, election systems, emergency workers. You know, we could go on with the list. You handed that list back to the intelligence community. What are they going to say? Election systems? We rigged the elections in Italy in the 40s and Latin America in the 50s. We don't want to, like, sign off on never doing that. Hospitals? This book describes an operation called Nitro Zeus, which was basically to unplug all of Iran, right? Uh, if we Did it go
0: after Iranian hospitals in that?
3: It would have unplugged the entire city of Tehran, hospitals included. Now, maybe some of them would have had backup generators. Maybe they wouldn't have. So um, it's built into our war plans to try to shut down entire cities sometimes countries, so that you can win without a shot being fired. I think
2: a lot of people don't fully um, understand that the the sort of second and third order effects of these uh, cyber attacks are actually physical, right? I mean, you know, if you go after a, uh, you know, the, uh, the the electricity grid that, that, that then shuts down a hospital,
3: people die, right? Um, that's right. And, you know, sometimes the first order effects are physical. I mean, the previous book opened with six years ago, opened with the attack on on the Iranian nuclear plant. It was made to be a physical attack. This book describes the attacks on the North Korean missile program. Well, you know, that's an effort to use cyber to do something subtle enough that it's not going to prompt
0: a war. OK, you've pointed out uh, the difficulties in coming up with a strategy and deciding how to um, protect ourselves and to respond when we get attacked. But I want to hear a little bit more of, you know, Potential answers to this dilemma, sure. because let let's take the 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 dilemma the Obama administration faced in the summer of 2016, when it was clear they knew there was a serious attack against our democracy. Uh, uh, as as you relate, as 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 I and David Korn did in our book as well, uh, there were people on the White House staff who proposed some very aggressive responses uh, to the Russian attack, denial of service attacks on uh, on Russian news sites, uh, exposing uh, the corruption in Putin's government, putting it on the Internet. And uh, the um, Obama people shied away. They didn't want to go there. They were afraid of escalation. Uh, Exactly the kind of dilemma you just laid out. So what should they have done? And going forward, you know, what is the right strategy? when there are all these potential pitfalls of an aggressive response.
3: So the first thing is, if you've got a nation as vulnerable as the United States is, don't kid yourself that you can use your cyber weapons no matter how cool they might be. Because if the president is always going to be um, stopped by the fact that uh, the other side can escalate, you're never going to do a thing. Okay, And the president, President Obama was and I understand why he was concerned that the way the Russians would come back would be on Election Day. And, you know, they were assuming Hillary Clinton was going to win. But they were also assuming that if the Russians did come back on Election Day, they would play into the Trump meme at that time that this election is rigged. So so th- that would be the, right. the first problem. That, so, that was their argument. Right. In any way. That was at least their yeah. argument. Right. But, you know, you saw that happen with other presidents at other times. So the first answer is recognize that the key limit to your offense is you need a decent defense. Now, Cyber Command's answer to this is, uh, as the book reveals, to go off more into foreign systems, see attacks as they are massing, and wipe them out ahead of time preemptively. Fine, except when you wipe out that server in China and the Chinese come back at you and say they weren't putting together malware, they were putting together educational software for kindergartners and first graders, right? Mm -hmm. And you just melted their server down. So we need to have a much deeper strategic understanding of how we want to use this, when and with what authorities. Right now, only the president can authorize a cyber operation, but there's some indication this administration wants to loosen those rules. Um, And then what the second-order effects are. I believe we're going to need something akin to what Brad Smith at Microsoft calls a digital Geneva Convention. You'll remember the original Geneva Conventions were not organized by governments. They were organized by the Red Cross, right? And if we don't begin to establish some norms of what it is that's going to be acceptable or not, and at times do that even in opposition to what the intelligence community is going to want to hold back, because they're going to want to keep every option open, then you're not going to begin to have a discussion of what's off limits, and it's going to be all of all, all against all. Sorry, Dan. so
2: David, uh, tell us uh, what leverage the United States has to try to persuade the Chinese and the Russians, just to take two examples, to participate in some kind of, um, uh, you know, I- international order on, the, on, this, on this subject?
3: The main leverage we have is that as the world gets more interconnected, no one is going to want to go invest in a country in which the possibility of sanctions, constant cyber war, and the shutdown of networks is a very real possibility. That's our best leverage.
0: So if, if folks know that it, uh, um, if they're thinking of investing in Russia and China, uh, right. I assume they're not thinking about investing in North Korea at this point. Um, uh, I, I hear
3: there may be a big hotel going <laughs> in. <there. laughs> that, uh, uh,
0: that they could suffer uh, consequences from a, uh, a cyber response from the United States. Or those okay.
3: networks yeah. could get sealed off from the rest of the world. You know there are things we can do to unplug networks and unplug networks from the banking system, but unplug networks generally it would make it a hard place to do business.
0: But but that's an escalation,
3: right? It's and so if, an you're, escal-
0: if you're the Russian, if you're the Russians, if you're the Chinese, if you're the Iranians, um, why would you simply accept that as opposed to? Responding in kind. One of the concerns of uh, 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 the Obama uh, folks in that summer was an escalation in which the Russians would go after our electric grid. They were already inside. They were right. already had implanted uh, malware in in the electric grid. Yep. Right. Um, that was pretty scary. As well, as well as in nuclear plants, right? As well as in nuclear
3: plants, and uh, and and that's not all. In some ways, I am less worried about the big hack, the cyber Pearl Harbor, than I am about the more subtle hacks because the Russians and the Chinese know that if they turn off all the lights from Boston to Washington and they are caught doing it and we've got a pretty good sense, not a perfect sense of what their malware is, that's the kind of hack that can actually prompt a military response. Whereas the more – what you've seen in cyber world in the past – 10 years, is people calibrating their cyber attacks to be short-of-war attacks that um, are used every day but designed not to prompt a military response. Now, one day, somebody's going to make a miscalculation. They're going to blow this, and you can sort of see that coming. That's one of the reasons that I, I wrote this book to point out that strategic vulnerability. But you've seen a hesitance to go turn off the power here, even though we know the Russians could go do it as they did in Ukraine. David, um,
2: because there's, as you pointed out, there's so much secrecy surrounding this issue. um, And were it not for uh, books like yours, we would know very little. Um, I think there are a lot of people out there wondering um, what – how is the Trump administration thinking about um, all these uh, very, very difficult um, issues? And are they – it's assuming uh, a, they are thinking. Well, about, that's yeah. right. And, you know, mm-hmm. and I think the fact that they, um, you know, got got rid of uh, their cyber co- coordinator might be a little bit of evidence that maybe they're not taking it as seriously as they should. But but it, but I don't know. But, but I guess the question is, um, what is the evidence if there is evidence that they are actually trying to develop um, a strategy, a kind of playbook uh, to deal with Um, you know, this uh, incredibly uh, complex uh, challenge. I mean, have you uh, been able to talk to people inside the current administration to give you some confidence that they are grappling with this in a serious way?
3: I I have. Um, I would tell you that when Tom Bossert was the Homeland Security uh, advisor and he was ousted the first few days of Bolton's time, and certainly when Rob Joyce, who used to run... The TAO, the Tailored Access Operations Unit of the NSA, and came in to be the cyber coordinator, these are people who were seriously thinking about how strategy had to be rewritten. How the executive orders in the Obama administration they thought were too restrictive, we can argue about whether they were or not, but wanted to go rewrite those. How they would develop a new system, which they announced in public. To decide which cyber vulnerabilities to make public and tell you know, the likes of Microsoft and Google so they could patch their systems, and which ones to hold back for weapon systems. They're all gone, and we can't figure out right now who's playing that role. We were told by the White House, since cyber is in everything, everyone will be responsible. Well, my usual experience in Washington is when everyone's responsible for something, no one's responsible for it. And I think that's a lot of what's going on today.
0: Why was Bossert
3: ousted? My guess, and this is more guesswork than anything else, um, he had direct access to the president as previous Homeland Security advisors did. His predecessor Lisa Monaco certainly did during the uh, Obama administration. I'm not sure that John Bolton wanted to have a separate and independent Homeland Security Advisor with direct access to the president. I think he wanted that for himself. Now, If you go back and look at the study that was done uh, by a commission set up by the Obama Administration in their last year and sort of delivered to the new administration, it called for, if anything, elevating the Homeland Security Advisor and the uh, the cyber coordinator, to near NSA status. Instead, what they've done is basically knocked down one job and eliminated the other.
0: Um, Let me ask you about uh, somebody you write about in the book who's uh, been uh, almost forgotten uh, over the last year or so, but uh, uh, somebody we talked and wrote about a lot uh, in the past, uh, Edward Snowden, Mm -hmm. um, uh, who uh, famously stole all those documents from the NSA uh, and uh, provided them to journalists. Um, The New York Times was among the many that published them. Um, You write in the book that um, uh, perhaps the most uh, astounding aspect of Snowden's effort to steal a huge trove of the agency's documents a move considered treasonous by many but long overdue and patriotic civil disobedience by his supporters is that it worked so well. Um, that's a pretty big uh, uh, gap there between uh, treasonous by many uh, patriotic civil disobedience uh, um, on the other hand. Um, where do you come down on uh, that dichotomy?
3: That he violated every single commitment he had made to the U.S. government, everything he had signed, every vow that he had taken, and that he probably did us a fair bit of good. Okay. And he did us good because, not because he revealed great NSA privacy invasions to the United States. I actually don't think he told us a whole lot in that area that we didn't already know from your reporting, from Jim Risen's reporting, from Eric Lickblau's reporting.
0: I think we had a pretty He confirmed good the metadata, uh, confirmed collection, the metadata which was, collection, which was a big deal.
3: It was a big deal, but right. we knew that the metadata program, you know, was out there. Uh, the Times had reported that and, and, mm-hmm. and others had as well. The big revelations, which to my mind didn't get anywhere near as much ink, had to do with what the NSA and GCHQ, the British— um, uh, program was doing against uh, their own systems, right? Against uh, uh, against foreigners who uh, we were breaking into. So let me give you a a big example from the book. So the for years we have warned Americans about using products made by Huawei, the big Chinese maker of telephones and servers, right? So you learn from the Snowden documents, and I describe it at some length in the book, that the NSA broke into Huawei, did everything inside Huawei that they have long warned that the U.S. would – that the Chinese would do to the U.S. to try to understand how Huawei's systems worked so they could tap into them when Huawei sold them to countries we didn't care for. Um, That's an example of a case where we have to sort of decide whether we want people to do what we say or we want people to do what we do?
0: Um, well. Uh... David, uh, I want to thank you for coming in. Uh, there's so much in this book uh, to unpack. Uh, uh, we could probably uh, talk for another hour or so. Well, but, I'll come uh, back sometime when you guys are having a slow week. Clyde, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> when were you having a slow week? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> All right. The book is The Perfect Weapon War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age by David Sanger. Thanks, David. Thank you.
2: Thanks to Ron Klein and David Sanger for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Skullduggery is also on Sirius XM. Subscribers can catch the latest episode on POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, with replays on Sundays at 12 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll talk to you next week.